Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon here with some brand new hijinks with me, Jinx Monsoon. Today, I get to speak with one of my all-time heroes, a queer and feminist icon, an amazing comedian, talented actor, an author, uh, an all-around badass, a political activist. And did I mention she's a queer feminist icon? It's Margaret Cho. So hunker down and sink your teeth into some brand new hijinks. Forever. Dog. everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today we are joined by comedian, actor, musician, podcast host, renaissance woman, queer icon, Margaret Cho. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Jinx. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start. I've I've been thinking about this interview for days now, and I'm going to start by just saying I get so nervous every time I talk to you. <laughs> Why? You shouldn't. We're friends, and we've talked a lot now, and especially over this um uh this format doing our podcasts on Zoom, we've talked quite a lot. So, yeah. I know. And I and I I'm fully prepared to mention that you know we've met a handful of times. Um, your episode is right around the corner with my Futurama podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But and I I always like I feel like I'm always walking this tightrope because I want to just act cool around you. You're this like punk rock feminist queer icon that I've been following my whole queer life and. I want to just be cool around you and just be like, oh, it's Margaret. We're just, we're chill. We're buds. But the 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 drag queen teenager inside of me that <laughs> worships you literally always gets nervous. Um, and so even when I had you on the Futurama podcast, I was like, there's so many things I want to ask her and talk to her about. And I just didn't want to like put too much on you. Well, now we're doing hijinks. And that's what this <laughs> podcast is all about. I love it. Well, I'm a fan of yours, a longtime fan. And so it's always fun. So, um, <laughs> you know, don't be nervous, but I get it. I have the same feelings when I um, see or speak to Debbie Harry. I yeah. get so excited because I really love her and I've, I've known her actually for quite a few years now, but the little, uh, Queer uh, kid, you know, thinking about her in the Stephen Sprouse doing Heart of Glass, and it it it's like I can't believe that I know her and I'm friends with her, and you know, it, it's always something that makes me really have um, panic diarrhea every time I have to see her. So I get it. Not that well, you have panic diarrhea. I mean, I was gonna say I'm a bottom, so I'm not gonna like um, disclose uh, what happens to my bowels every time we talk. But <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I my I think the thing that always blows my mind the most is 
you know, every time we've interacted, I'll have at least one moment where I'm like, oh, and uh, this was this thing that I did or, um, you know, I'm a drag queen who did this. And you always have a moment of, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you're, totally, you're hip to the drag world. You're and plugged I, in. <laughs> I love you. And, and you know, it, it's really um, drag is interesting because you are probably the only uh, drag performer that I know that actually doesn't I mean, doesn't do the drag that is just lip sync or that is just sort of it's costuming, but it's different. It's like you're in the skin of this character it's 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 a different interpretation of drag it's very theatrical it's very deep um that goes beyond sort of a lot of the artifice of drag which is a different thing i think drag is so interesting because it's it's changed so much through the show drag race Mm -hmm. and uh, we sort of look at it through the lens of that but i think uh what you do is is very very uh, unique in that world and i i love it well, thank you. I mean, I have to um, pay credit where it's due. Uh, I, I I think drag has always had all these different ways of doing drag. And the way that spoke to me the most was the cabaret style. Like you create mm-hmm. a character with a whole backstory and a whole life. And then you get on stage and you become that character. Even if your drag persona is an extension of you or when you're in drag, you know, it's like, she's the person is still in there but there's very Mm -hmm. like there's a very steeped character around jinx monsoon and i got that from watching people like varla jean merman and coco peru Mm -hmm. and um many uh, many drag icons that came before me but i have to admit that like a lot of a lot of inspiration early inspiration in my life came from watching your comedy specials. And part of that is just your like storytelling, your joke delivery, but also the way this is my, one of my favorite things about you is you pull your audience in with comedy throughout the whole special. And then you hit them with all the hard truths and all your like, foundation shattering (laughs) punk rock political beliefs and (laughs) I just I I think the ability to like set people at ease with comedy and then hit them with truth bombs once they're once they kind of got their guard down it's something I really (laughs) respect I love it (laughs) I love it I mean I think it's important to have a moment and a message um, when you're performing but at the same time uh, there's so much performative aspects of uh, activism nowadays. It's like, you know, evidenced in um, the Met Gala, mm-hmm. which uh, I actually really thought was interesting because of the weird backlash. There's so much backlash around activists and activism when it's sort of like performative. And that mm-hmm. the Met Gala with the, the tax the rich and peg the patriarchy dresses or uh, outfits and then um, combined with the team, the reality show, the activist, um, which is actually not <laughs> happening now. Did you hear about that? No. Tell me all about it. There was a reality show called, I guess oh, it's called the activist. <laughs> yeah, I heard a little bit about this, but I want to hear your take on it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, they, they're uh, putting um, sort of a reality, like it's American, America's next top model. Um, <laughs> 
meets, I'm not sure. There's no other show for it. I, I, it would be change.org, I guess. It's a kind of, it was a reality show that was supposed to find the next activist, which is really like a crazy thing. It's like, why would you use um, television and reality show programming, which is, um, you know, subversively very corporate Mm-hmm. In a in a way to uh, find purpose in activism, so they were pitting activists against each other. Um, I don't know who was actually <laughs> going to be the activists on the show, but uh, there was like all this stuff. So anyway, they pulled the plug on the show. They're not doing yeah. it now because there was such th- a huge outcry against it. Yeah, I think um, uh, the only way I learned about it was someone was posting their dad's responses so like dad joke responses to an activist reality tv show like a dad going like how are they gonna assign points for that uh, whoever's the most woke gets the most points today yuckety, yuckety. <laughs> you know like yeah but yeah it's such a it's such a crazy concept and especially the nature of reality tv having done it myself is it's both real and you know like stylized i almost said fake it's never fake but it's stylized and like Mm -hmm. very hyper performative at the same time that it is real but it's like this special kind of reality you know (laughs) well it's like we love sports because we love people who prepare for a moment and then they have their moment and then they're competing with other people and so it really comes from sports as entertainment that we love mm-hmm. a reality show and yeah. um and so we sort of internalize competition i think it's one of this very like human things to want to outdo the other whoever that is and yet activism really is um there's something that is really like you can't quantify the value of an activist because everybody's values are different you can't say yeah. who's better than who because it's that's really kind of um, almost trying to legislate a um, value or like apply a value to something that it, it really it has so much more value than anything you could enumerate. So yeah. um, it's a very it, it's a way to cheapen something that's very noble. Uh, and and so it's a, it's a funny thing because it's like um, I could see why they would want to do a show like that because it's just so. It, it 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 is like I would actually probably want to watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> but at the same time, it's just weird and gross. It's weird and gross, and it's such a perfect example of like whatever is the thing that we're all talking about. Whatever is, um, I don't want to call it a trend because activism is not a trend, but the like viewership of activism and the like way we're all kind of like plugged in because of the experiences we've collectively had and just where society is moving. I see that activism is getting this spotlight differently than it ever has before. And then corporations see that and we're are like, how do we monetize activism? Mm-hmm. Which has to be, why isn't it obvious that that's like counterproductive to what activism right. is like yeah oh it's so weird how our, our 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 culture has become so incredibly consumerist yet we're still trying to find 
our soul underneath that. So I yeah. can see why somebody would, would say, oh, I have an idea. Let's have an activist reality show, which I think, um, you know, I, I can see the machinations behind making that decision, but it was just so badly received, as was a lot of the activism around the Met Gala. I mean, not mm-hmm. act- there was a separate thing happening outside the Met Gala, which was a, a lot of Black Lives Matter protests happening, which I think is really yeah. great. Um, and, you know, a, a need to sort of express, it's like, why are we not um, embracing indigenous Native American culture? Why are not more Native people invited? Why are not? Uh, because if it's the, the theme is overreaching America. We, mm-hmm. uh, as, as we have done in like sort of mainstream society, we've absolutely ignored um, the Native and indigenous populations of this country. So it's really... Um, yeah. I think it's deep. It's really interesting. Uh, there's a couple of dresses that I really liked. Um, I like Nikki Tutorials did a, a thing for Marsha P. Johnson, which was really beautiful. Like a, yes, quite a beautiful, yeah. Like an Art Nouveau tribute. Uh, a very sort of literal tribute uh, to uh, Marsha, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, people were so mad uh, about... The tax, the rich thing, which I thought was was very great. I thought it was fun. I thought it. Was I really thought so too. So fun. It had an element of camp to it, you know, mm-hmm. which is, um, I I don't know. It was probably my favorite look. Um, that and Lil Nas X, who like lately oh, yes. I can't I can't get enough of Lil Nas X. <laughs> I love uh, the pregnancy. Montero is now born. Um, which I was listening to, which I've been watching him on TikTok. And um, my friend actually made the uh, second the second layer of the it was the gay armor, the gold armor. Oh yeah, yeah. So he made that. Um, he had done a dress for me. He actually had made dresses for me and Selene Luna. When Selene got married, he made her wedding mm-hmm. dress and he made my uh, maid of honor dress. Um, so it, it was it was really great to see him. He does so many great things for people like Beyonce and you know. But Little yeah. Nas X was just so there was just so much happening. Um, <laughs> it was just such a beautiful uh, look, and the armor was just probably my favorite element of it. Yeah, I I've been noticing um in queer fashion that like uh armor is coming up a lot in queer fashion. One of my favorite looks of Simone's on the last season of Drag Race was she had like a kind of half suit of armor very kind of similar to what Lil Nas X was wearing, but it was like a breastplate and one full like arm of armor and then kind of like a Grecian inspired gown um, all together in one look. And there's something really exciting to me about queer people getting dressed for battle. (laughs) Right. It's great. It recalls like Joan of Arc, who is like to me kind of a very cool, queer iconic sort of figure in that era um you know that kind of like um the young female knight you know yeah. i think is very i think it's really exciting and you know it's really about nobility but also at the same time like nobles who fight which i think is very respectful yeah, <laughs> yeah. i love it Margaret, you have had an amazing career. You've 
always been there in my life. <laughs> yes. I I watched every episode of All American Girl and then to watch Notorious CHO and hear your behind the scenes thoughts and experiences on doing an American sitcom. Um they're they're great companion pieces to watch mm. to watch Margaret Cho um I I venture to say at your most mainstream, like, hello, America, here's, <laughs> here's a sitcom for you. And then to watch Notorious CHO and, and, and get your take on that. Um, were you ever, was there ever any um, fear about being so outspoken against a, a, I wouldn't say against, but like just telling it how it is working on a project like a, a network sitcom like that. Well, I didn't really have anything to lose at, you know, at that point because there was like nether, no, no other like opportunities that I had except for stand up comedy. And so I thought, well, I'll just take what I'm doing as a comedian and really expand on that. Like, I think that um, having an early television failure was actually very valuable to the longevity of my career because I could wow. have just sort of ended and now maybe been a real housewife. Like I kind of think <laughs> if the show had been really successful, then maybe I would have like, I don't know, um, just sort of been closeted and then been like a, you know, like very unhappy person and not done stand. I wouldn't have pursued the stand up comedy career that I, I yeah. was capable of doing. Do you think you would have ended up like um, Lisa Kudra's character in uh, The Comeback? Yeah, Valerie I could have been like a very comeback. I could have, um, you know, that like I, I was a pretty like a kind of lost person in stand-up comedy was where I sort of found myself. But uh, mm -hmm. I was really searching for whatever that is. So stand-up comedy has always been really important in that it was a guiding light in a lot of ways. Like, I guess I could, I could have become a Scientologist. That's really scary. I could have, um, like, um, gotten really into like golf, something <laughs> weird. Like there would be like a Margaret Cho golf classic com competing heavily with Dinah Shore, you know, like something, um, I, I just see, 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 like feel like comedy was probably the best thing that I could have done. And so, and it was all I had. So mm -hmm. I thought, Oh, I'll just do this. And then, you know, have fun do drugs um, and enjoy <laughs> my life, which is, it's actually really great now because now I'm doing a lot more acting and, and that's really come around really in a, a beautiful way. So yeah, it's great to do, be able to do all of it. Yeah. And you certainly have done all of it. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to, I'm going to reference a lot back to Notorious CHO since it was such a pivotal um, it's a special I watched over and over. I got to the point where I was like, you know, memorizing your jokes. I and love it. <laughs> um, s some of the things that I love most about your standup is your candor talking about um, talking about your home life. I mean, I live for I, I think a lot of people just love watching you do impressions of your mom because yes. that's something you know <laughs> it's so funny because like your mom and the character of your mom and your stand-up is something that I had no access to in my own you know in my own life and yet I related to it and yet I like loved it and I felt like I felt like I totally got it, even though there's no one in my there was no one in my life at that time like your mom. Mm -hmm. And you you gave us this like window into your life and simultaneously 
taught us about your culture, but then also taught us how universal family experiences are. And um, has that ever gotten you in trouble with your mom? No, <laughs> I know you she t- <laughs> loves it. She loves it. She loves to be in the spotlight. And um, she's very, uh, it, I think she just really enjoys um, like kind of, because I think a lot of times um, older women, older Asian women, as they age, they become invisible. That's why we had so many issues with um, violence against yeah. older Asian American women um, after sort of the pandemic was going and there was all these hate crimes against Asian women, old Asian women, because there is part of us that's very invisible. And that when you can push somebody that is invisible into the light, it's really satisfying for them. So she was really always, she's still very, very appreciative of it and really loves it. So I think it's, she doesn't care, um, what it is, you know, and then my parents are just so surprised by my success in life that they're Mm. like so happy with whatever they get. So I think it's really great. That's awesome. I, it, it makes me think both of my own mom who, um, winds up in my material all the time these days. And now it's like at this point that my mom's starting to see my material Mm -hmm. (laughs) and see the stories I tell about her to which she always responds like, Oh, bad no you're remembering it wrong but then also loves like you know anytime I bring her up on stage and she's in the audience she totally does a look around and a wave around like it's me it's me yeah they love it they love to be um kind of brought back into the light which I think when you're getting older that's something that people don't do as often so I, I love that yeah um Doing a little research um, on your Wikipedia, mm-hmm. <laughs> the most reliable research network, <laughs> um, uh, it says that you have done uh, sex work in the past, both mm-hmm. um, phone sex work and dominatrix yeah. work. Yeah. Um, I feel like I I I feel like I know I knew about the the dominatrix work, but not as much about the um, the phone sex work. Uh, what was that experience like? Um. Well, I was doing a phone sex with my friend Jerry, who was a huge fan of yours. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> she, she died uh, two years ago. Oh, I'm now. sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's really sad, but she loved you. She's a big fan of yours. And uh, she and I were uh, going into, so we were doing this uh, phone sex recorded in a studio. So we sounded white. <laughs> so, because um, all of the other girls had like some kind of accent. Mm-hmm. So since we sounded so white, we were given um, the sort of a little bit of a, a raise and a promotion by doing uh, scripted uh, phone sex. So we didn't actually have to talk to anybody. Oh, wow. Um, and so we would read these sexual monologues, which was really stupid <laughs> and funny. And then sometimes we'd have to like eat like candy while we were recording <laughs> so that it would sound like we were fellating somebody or that we had very like watery mouths. And it was very funny. Um, and uh, the, there was a couple of times that I did it with other people. Um, also like a party line uh-huh. kind of thing. But this is like, even before nine, seven, six numbers, I think this was like, even like sort of like predated that. This is like the eighties. So 
it's a really a funny thing. So I was very young, and this is San Francisco. It was like around like North Beach, you know, mm-hmm. one of these sleazy places that you would go, and um, it would be like a big room, and you'd go, and all of these women would be on the phone in cubicles and talking with, you know, to headsets and then like slapping their hand, like, yeah, eat that pussy, eat that pussy, <laughs> eat that pussy. And just like, it's so weird um, to kind of go through this long room of, of people talking and then you'd get to the booth and then you record and then leave. But it was also at the same time, uh, Jerry and I also had jobs. She was the court jester. <laughs> and I was a Raggedy Ann at FAO Schwartz. So often we would go to work um, with our costumes on still from our other job. So I'd have my Raggedy Ann and she was a court jester. And then we would go straight from the toy store to the phone sex job. And then, um, you know, we'd go out and smoke pot or whatever. But it was a very, uh, you got paid really well. I mean, if you, you start, like, yeah. you get like $100 to do a day of work, which is like a huge amount of money in the eighties. Yeah. And, uh, for under the table for, you know, if you're like 17, it's quite like the lucrative after school job. And we weren't even in school. (laughs) So it was perfect. I, I love it. Um, (laughs) so you got the pay raise because you sounded white and could do monologues. Yes. So we would get like, um, and she would write all these like, all this copy she was Uh doing it she would like write it out and um give it to me it's things to read and um we would go into the booth and record it and there was a guy that would record us he was uh her friend and it was he i think his name was michael and he had like he was one of those guys like in the 80s that would wear a shirt open to the waist but it was like not sleazy like it was more like (laughs) swashbuckly i don't know exactly what the style is but it was kind of in the 80s, there was something that, I think it was like that Duran Duran, Hungry Like the Wolf, sort of like internalized, where you think that you're certain yeah. sort of kind of like, um, you know, a, a, a citizen of the world. Yeah, uh, there was the, a, you know. The 80s yeah. had like a, um, a, a, a renaissance of the, uh, the romance period for men's fashion, mm-hmm. like the interview with the vampire. Do you, right. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Probably like that, like a lace collar. Like it was a yeah. little, it was like an offshoot of goth, but it was also more like silk road adventurer. Where yeah. you're, um, and a modern iteration of that would be like Anthony Bourdain, who mm-hmm. was deeply tanned, who would wear like a linen shirt that yeah. um, he was very able to go between cultures like Michael was that kind of style of guy, but he would wear a, a shirt that was unbuttoned to the waist and mm-hmm. it was not sleazy. Like it wasn't like a gold chains kind of thing. It wasn't that even though it was sex work. Um, yeah. There was something not sleazy about the way that he dressed and, and that there, yeah, there was a Pirates of Penzance thing <laughs> going on. So funny. I, I'm curious to know, um, Margaret Cho's thoughts on this weird place we are at right now with our culture where we are simultaneously, you know, um, uh, we are doing the work to end slut shaming. We are doing the work to, um, you know, label sex work as work and stop demonizing sex work. And then we've got this backlash coming where 
apps are, you know, OnlyFans almost banned all their sexual content. Tumblr a while ago banned, like, porn or put a bunch of restrictions on porn. Um, and then we're seeing this weird, like, flux. This We're in this weird limbo with entertainment where it's like we're simultaneously giving a platform to sex workers, but still, like, in mainstream entertainment are, like, you know, like sex workers are this type of person and the people we watch on TV are a different type of person. I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but it's this weird like back and forth with, are we in a sexual revolution or not? (laughs) Well, I think there's always going to be a fight for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has to do with a lot of like internalized misogyny and homophobia around it. And um, sex work is hard work. I mean, if you think about like, how much um, physical labor it entails um, and that people are, you know, kind of going about it and it's unregulated. It's, um, you know, like you, you don't get like workman's comp it, yeah. or, or like any kind of like safety. I mean, it is something like, like OSHA should be involved. Like there's a lot of like significant safety risk in sex work where it's like you can hurt your back you can hurt your arms yeah kind of bust a viagra nut that's like (laughs) all hand and arm work that is like so hard like i i think that um sex workers should have a lot more medical sort of care protection in that regard because it's physically just difficult yeah um but, uh, you know, that's not even counting all of the other stuff, you know, that it, it, it's like you're you're in a, a socially sort of unacceptable unacce- place. So you sort of have to hide so much stuff about you. Like there, there's so much that needs to be addressed when we're talking about self. I think sex work should be safe. It should be um, really like looked at as a respectable profession because I think it is. Like, and yeah. I think like doms also like, if you're a good dominatrix, that's like a combination educator, uh, psychologist, um, therapist, uh, you know, it, it's almost like regression therapy. Yeah. It's yeah. hypnosis. It's body work. It's, um, a combination of all of these healing arts. Um, I, I, I think that you know, they should be compensated. And, and oftentimes they are. I think dominatrixes mm-hmm. are definitely compensated a lot better than sort of like in sex work in general. Mm-hmm. But it's it's something that like we just don't have as a society a really evolved attitude towards. Yeah. And uh, which is ridiculous seeing as, you know, it's always been there. It's always gonna be there. And the same people who are, you know, trying to pass the laws that restrict or continue to demonize and make sex work illegal are probably sex workers' biggest clients. You know, like mm-hmm. the the hypocrisy, the blatant hypocrisy is the thing that's got me in a constant state of white hot rage, you know. <laughs> like, well, I mean, it's, it's so much many things. I mean, it, it's that combined with... Um, the the loss of control over women's bodies you know that we're experiencing this like real regression in terms of where are we politically where we're not allowing for abortions after six weeks you know yeah who even knows they're pregnant at six weeks it's a very let's like 
very easy to do to like be pregnant yeah. for six weeks and not know. And then what do you do? And it, it doesn't mean that you're sexually promiscuous. And even if you are like, shouldn't you should be able to just sort of like deal with that? Like the, the laws around abortion are so insane. Um, I had a, a sort of a illegal abortion in um, New York. It was a menstrual extraction and mm-hmm. it was so um, it was like shady, like shadily legal like there wasn't real terms around it but it was so easy there was no medication involved there was no um sedation it was so easy like not painful at all and Mm -hmm. i've had traditional um, surgical abortions which were very very invasive very painful Mm -hmm. and very expensive and um it's like we're not given a good medical solution because we choose to terminate our pregnancy we're not given choices that are easy for us to to do. You know, they're they're always yeah. like putting this thing on women, like you have to bear the burden of this, and if you're not going to have this child, it's going to be painful. It's like a horrible situation. So I opted yeah. for menstrual extraction, which is really a great uh, route out of um, pregnancy. Yeah. Well, I think. Like we've seen in in many forms before, you know, uh, trying to make something necessary, crucial, and important illegal doesn't stop it from happening. It just makes it more unsafe and gives people fewer resources and just makes everything worse for people, <laughs> you know? Like- yeah, I mean, it's, it's just hideous and... I, I feel like, you know, why are you making this a moral issue, whether or not we should have children? I mean, you know, obviously we're not expanding social services to take care of all these kids anyway. You yeah. know, so it's it's like, where is this idea that kids are some kind of natural resource that's depleted? <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah. we're, you know, like, I don't. I don't know what the hell is going on, but it's really like this weird need to control women's bodies. And like that, that whole population seems to get so mad when we're asking them to wear a mask. Yeah. Cause they're like my body, my choice. Well, yeah, but not when it comes to our bodies. Like for some reason it's like, we have to make concessions to your ideas. So stupid. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just such blatant hypocrisy. And I think, uh, Lindy West said one of my favorite quotes about it because I'm like, oh, my God, that's it right there on The Daily Show. She said, you know, I'm going to misquote, but to the effect of, you know, it's just it's not only control over women's bodies, but it's to keep poor people poor. Mm -hmm. And um, if you want evidence for that, it's that like the politicians passing these laws, their mistresses and wives are going to have no problem getting abortions because they have a shit ton of money so it's really just about keeping poor people poor because you know a great way to keep a great way to be poor is have lots of kids so (laughs) and it's it's really a great way to sort of like look towards um you know way way bigger problems like like in terms of like where do we then get get control back of our bodies yeah do we get control back of our lives it's really um I don't understand how this happened. You know, we we won the battle to have abortions legally 50 years ago almost. 
You know, yeah. it's like, where, why are we going backwards? It's like, really, it's disgusting. And, and I mean, this is Trump's lasting fuck you to yeah. uh, our country is, is really what he did with the Supreme Court. I think he, he didn't even know. It was, he was just dumb and sort of like went with the idea of like, oh, well, I'll get the conservatives to back me. And the conservatives really just used him to get to this yeah. place where we're at now. So it's a very, I, I don't think that Donald Trump is actually evil. I think he's just dumb. Yeah. So I, I dumb think that's what and, it is. Vain. Yeah. <laughs> dumb, vain, narcissistic, orange haired asshole, which if that's what people wanted in a president, I would have <laughs> ran that year too. Um <laughs> gotta say you know kind of like thinking back on your comedy and just like having watched your career um i i just think comedians are among the most intelligent people i know because you're you're social analysts you know like to find what's funny about life you have to be paying attention to life in a very observant and very intuitive way to find the universal truths that we all want to laugh at together. And that means you're probably wading through a lot of like the worst aspects <laughs> of humanity to find the things to make us laugh. But um, I find you so fiercely intelligent and I say fiercely intelligent because you, you use intelligence like like you're in you like that's your suit of armor your humor and your intelligence and you're out there fighting for like so much of what i learned about like misogyny towards women in hollywood and um you know the emphasis on body image and and then just like anti-queerness it all kind of started for me early in life i came out and then i found margaret cho's stand-up comedy. Oh, I <laughs> they love were that. Like, it was a companion. Um, you've played so many wonderful roles, but one of one of the roles that stand out to me, of course, and you were nominated for a primetime Emmy for this role, was on 30 Rock, where you portrayed mm-hmm. Kim Jong-il. <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. Um, and I actually got to do Kim Jong-un also, it, it was great to be able to do. Um, although I think about like North Korea as being really terrifying because I've actually like done so much research about that country now. And it's like, we just don't know what's happening there. Yeah. Like we just have no idea. Like actually there's no recorded voices of, of any of them that you've ever heard. Like it's very limited to even know what their voices sound like, what they uh, are doing at any point in time. It's a very weird country because they spend so much of their money on image and so little on the health of the people. And it's like, so it's really depressing. But, um, I think that if I, uh, ever attempted, if I ever attempted to go there, I would be assassinated. I'm I was, sure. was going to say, <laughs> did you ever, when, when you portrayed those characters on such a widely viewed show, did you have any fear for your safety? Um, I remember that like I was, I would just get trolled a lot on 
social media. And I know that it wasn't actual people. Like it was just bots yeah. from North Korea because they spend so much of their money where they should be feeding their people. Um, they spend yeah. it on hackers. Yeah. Which is a really weird part of their um, kind of society. Yeah, You know, uh, when the movie, um, the interview came out, uh, they mm-hmm. spent all of like what they should have spent feeding the country on trying to hack into Sony's computers and mm-hmm. expose all these like emails. But it was this big distraction. Um, it, the, the sort of thing of like, we can't make fun of us. That's the one thing that they don't want is that for anybody to make fun of them. Um, yeah. It's a very, in a sense, it is a kind of a vanity but it's like if you're laughing at them, then you're going to start to look further at what's going on. And I think yeah. after that Sony hack, that a lot of the interest and um, sort of suspicion around North Korea, even though it's always it's always been there, it will always will be, be there. It it it's started to sort of like reach peak and then deflate. It yeah. went way back down, you know, because people are like, "What's going on over there?" It's super weird. And then you see these like weird shows where people are holding up the cards and making these huge like presentations of um pictures by holding them yeah. <laughs> like we're just like seeing documentaries about <laughs> yeah. it and people writing books about it and all of these people who had escaped were writing about it and um you know all of those voices have been silenced over time yeah so it's a very like you see like oh actually they do have people that are very in charge of things that will terrorize you personally through like trolling or whatever i mean i had to sort of stop looking at any kind of like trolling. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I, had the, I had this weird thing where I was like also like starting to try to find people and like trolling. And then I had a friend who was actually a hacker, people, a bunch of people that I knew who I never met in person, but were like parts of anonymous and stuff who were like mm-hmm. friends and fans, but like I didn't really know them. Like if somebody would be trolling me, then I would get like their um, information. Like somebody would send me their social security number. Like somebody would be like, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want this. Oh my God. I don't want this. Like, it's weird how people uh, are fighting now through yeah. hacking and that kind of doxing and stuff like that is so weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely like, I'm not old enough to be like, let's go back to before, before cell phones and social media. But I definitely, I think I got worn out of it, you know, and it feels Mm -hmm. like this necessary evil in my career and like where I am at right now, because, you know, I don't know how many people know this, but like Drag Race Girls, the social media response to you and how many followers you have and not just drag race girls, but you know, like I I speak from what I know. Um, but like your follower count is being considered for things now. I mean, like, like for getting work or for getting admitted to certain schools, like Mm -hmm. follower count is now like a commodity. Right. And it, it, it's just so funny to me because I also think like follower count is so arbitrary when it comes to talent and who's actually yeah. right for the job. But it's because, true. because it's entertainment weird. is capitalized, you know, uh, producers don't want to overlook like the, the follower count as an aspect of whether or not a person gets the job. And it's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, but there's so, um, there's so much, uh, I just started a TikTok uh, mm-hmm. three days ago, 
and it's it's so crazy how it's like a whole language of like yeah. people and people who you think are famous are not famous on TikTok. Yeah, and, and it's <laughs> yeah. so weird. It's like, but you know, the the follower count is very um, different. Is a whole it's a whole nother arena of fame and um, show business that I had no idea. There's t- stars that never even leave the platform. Yeah, so it's and- all that. I, I want to hear about that experience for you as a stand-up comedian, because I can say that, you know, like, I see now with drag, one, because it's safer um, to be a drag queen than it was when I started, like, 18 years ago. Uh, it's more popular. But also, like, drag queens can get their start online and not have to... Um, crawl through their hands and knees through the dive bars, you know, performing for like 10 people for, for crumpled up ones. Like we used to have to, to get you to, to cut your teeth in the drag world. And I feel like there must be a parallel with the, the comedy world. Like, you know, to make it big in comedy, you used to have to like really hustle and pay your dues and um, do everything you know, everything that came your way. And now we see comedians like getting their start on YouTube and TikTok and making their entire comedy career out of a digital platform. I'd love to know, how do you feel about that? (laughs) Do you, I think it's it's interesting. (laughs) I mean, I, I think that there's, it's really still not easy though, because you still have to learn the, the pathway through like becoming an artist it, 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 there's no shortcuts to becoming a real artist. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's different shortcuts on like how people are doing it. Like instead of doing it in bars and going through these sort of like open mic nights or whatever, like stand-up comedians would you used to have to do, you, you still have to learn how to work into that algorithm and yeah. get in there. I mean, it's still hugely challenging. So, you know, yeah. to, to make it into people's minds and to be able to sort of make them laugh in the space of TikTok or YouTube or whatever, social media in general, it's still a very, there's still a pretty steep learning curve. So yeah. I think it's matched by whether it's the physical experience of going out and trial and error in performance and, you know, going or like going through trying to figure out how to get your image across through millions and billions of other creators. So it's really, um, it's interesting. So I think that that like people think, oh, you know, they don't know what it's like. It was so hard when we were starting out, you had to do this and this, but it's not that it's easy to do anything online either. So it's like quite, I I think it's, it's challenging in a different way. Mm-hmm. And then it, the great equalizer is that we all want to come together and do live shows. I mean, when we come back to yeah. doing that um, in a very significant way, which I'm starting to, but it's still a little bit weird. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think well, it's good. Yeah. I mean, I think the way you describe it is uh, pretty much how I feel and like that it's all relative, you know, and you you can't like you can't say that this one person is doing it the right way and this person is doing it the wrong way. Cause at the end of the day, it's like, does the content reach the audience? You know, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a sign of progress, like in the drag world that like a drag queen doesn't have to be 21 and able to go to the bars to start doing drag. I was lucky cause I grew up in Portland where there was an all ages 
queer dance club for me to start drag at. And then some pretty lenient bars that, um, you know, I always looked older in drag anyway, so it was easy for me to get past the bouncers and stuff. But <laughs> I, I do think it's a sign of progress that like we've, you know, like you can start drag at any age and you can start mm-hmm. it in your own safe env- environment. And so I feel like simultaneously, I feel like, yeah, I'm one of those crotchety old queens who's like, well, we used to have to, <laughs> we used to have to sell jello shots between our numbers and I got paid in sweaty crumpled up ones. But then I'm also like, well, what did I do it for if not to make it easier for young teenagers to, to do, to do drag wherever they choose to do it. So yeah, um, yeah it's good. It's really good. It's good. And it's also important to embrace um, the youth and what they're doing. Like, I'm just so impressed by all of the talented creators out there on TikTok, like amazing queer content, amazing um, young people doing things that I couldn't even imagine doing at their age. So it's really it's really cool. Yeah. And I think the best thing coming from people generating their own work is now we're seeing um, more and more um, really good TV shows that came out of people independently producing their own work, like saying, this is what I want to see in the world, so I'm going to do it myself. And then Mm -hmm. it gets picked up. And then we get to see things like... um, I, I always cite Pen15 and Broad City, you know, yeah, shows that were created by the stars of the shows. And mm-hmm. then, you know, um, Broad City, they, by the end, they were directing the episodes, starring in the episodes, writing the episodes. Yeah. And that's why I think it was so good because they, it was the two of them creating without a lot of fingers getting into the pie. Right, right. You know, that they had created the vision and that that vision was able to be maintained because they like sort of like, like, it's this way. And then they showed everybody how to do it, which is great. Yeah. Margaret, you are such an icon to me. You are one of my heroes. Um... I'm I'm so glad I finally just told you I get nervous around you so that like the next time I like um, stumble during the intro of a <laughs> something <laughs> or sometimes I feel like I don't I don't want to alienate you by just sitting there and quoting you at you. Um, <laughs> so, but if I want to do, I could just sit here and list off all the quotes um, that run in my head constantly that you brought into my life. But instead, I'm going to um, give you uh, my my um, send off questions, my compulsory send off questions that I ask every guest. Um, First, who is your celebrity crush today? Oh, my celebrity crush today is. uh... Oh, gosh. Um, Hmm. You know. Um, I, I find, uh, that Megan Rapinoe very attractive. There's also a, a really beautiful girl on uh, TikTok. Um, her name is Taylor. She's a dancer. She's queer. She's too young. She's 27, (laughs) but she's so attractive. And she does these like TikTok dances where it's like very, like, it looks like she's doing, she's in stop motion animation, Mm -hmm. but it's really incredible. Um, so I just, I find that 
dance is something that's just like so trippy and yeah, she's so attractive. That's her. Um, yeah. But she's far too young for the <laughs> likes of me. But uh, she's she's quite something. Um, but yes, I like those girls. Um, there is there is a couple of guys that I'm like, oh, is the dead guy on Flight Attendant? Did you ever watch that on HBO Max? No. It's really good. It's really good. Um, the dead guy is really hot. I've never seen him. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure I've seen him in other things, but he's really, he's a really good dead guy. He's, if you watch the, you'll, you'll know, but he's very good. So he's very sexy. It's sort of like very he's vanilla a, for me to like him, but he's really cute. I am looking for the name of my celebrity crush for today. Um, <laughs> I, have you been watching the other two? No, no, no. Oh, I am I'm in love with the show. It's super queer, but it's also um uh one thing that's just like making me really happy is there's just like constant references to kind of the like the upswing in uh foot fetish being mainstreamed <laughs> these days. Uh-huh. Like it's kind of unspoken, but like everyone has a foot fetish now. So <laughs> this show is really like calling it out and I think it's hilarious. But my celebrity crush for the day is Gideon Glick, who um uh, uh appears in season two of the other two, and I guess also originated um one of the roles in Spring Awakening the musical. So mm. there you go. Um <laughs> next compulsory question. Are you spiritual? Um, this sort of, but I, I mean, I, uh, I'm doing, I, I'm in a program of, uh, you have to have a higher power. Mm-hmm. So my higher power is math. <laughs> <laughs> I think of math and science as being a kind of, uh, ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. So if I were to pray, I would pray to, um, math that, that there is something that, that, you know, counting that we have numbers to count um, is yeah. a really incredible thing to me. So in, in spiritual, that is my spiritual sort of essence is the maths, the sciences, quantum physics. All of that is to me so mysterious and therefore my uh, idea that there is a God. Well, you know, in witchcraft, there's a lot of overlap in, uh, with with magic and math and witchcraft and like the history of witchcraft yeah. and um like uh solomon uh ancient you know ancient wizard sorcerer solomon um all of his like magical practices like drawing the the symbols and invoking spirits and demons and angels with these special you know circles and symbols and stuff was all based in math mm. and in in art like in a lot of like sci-fi shows there's a lot of sci-fi shows where magic exists because it's actually just a really really ancient form of math or a really advanced mm-hmm. form of math and yeah so i i love the idea of thinking of math and magic they can live in the same universe they are the same thing i think they're the <laughs> yeah. same thing I mean, I, I think that magic is math and, and it's they're, they're all part of the same idea. Great. Let's start. Let's start our own cult. We'll be called the, 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 I, I the can't nines. think of anything. We're the, the nines. nines. <laughs> to the nines. We're to the nines. <laughs> um, final question for you. What's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, um, 
Well, right now, I don't know if it's on karaoke, because you know how, like, all songs are not on karaoke? So it's like when you try yeah. to find a song, and it's just, like, not going to be there. So I'm singing a song next week in Austin um, for uh, something, but I'm treating it like a karaoke song. And if it was on karaoke, I would sing it. Sleep to Dream by Fiona Apple. Good old Fiona Apple. Good old Fiona <laughs> Yeah, she's the best. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I judge a karaoke place by their, the, um, breadth of their, uh, Broadway show tune collection. Mm. You know, yeah. if they only got like singing in the rain and coming up roses and that's it, it's not the karaoke bar for no. me. No. <laughs> I wonder what that is. Is it about licensing? Like you don't want to buy like certain kind of licensing or I'm not sure I, exactly. I wonder, it's probably about popularity and the people at the karaoke bar trying to guess what their audience is going to want, you know, mm-hmm. what their, what their patrons are going to want. Um, Cause I know at queer karaoke bars, they've got like Patti Lapone's full songbook, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> they've oh, got yeah, every last Bette Midler song. Right. Of course. <laughs> Well, Margaret, thank you so much for being my guest today. Do you have anything you would like to promote to our listeners? And um, where can we find you on social media? And Um, as long as they promise not to troll you. uh... (laughs) Yeah, I'm on um, Twitter at Margaret Cho, um, Margaret underscore Cho on Instagram and the Margaret Cho on TikTok. I am also um, going to be on tour. uh, So you can check out my dates at margaretcho.com. So I'm going out there being on the road um, for the next uh, several years, I hope. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I'm at a point in my life where I might actually get to see a Margaret Cho special, a Margaret Cho touring show live. Yes. Um, so I'm going to go I'm going to go myself right now to margaretcho.com and figure out when I can see you. I love it. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank I you. love you so much. I love and I, you. Thank you for being generous with your time and your opinions. Of and course. thank you all so much for listening to Hijinks here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hijinks on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. And I'll see you next Wednesday for some more Hijinks. Forever To listen to Hijinks ad-free and one day early, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. Make sure to follow at Forever Dog Team and at Mom Podcasts on social and rate and review Hijinks five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hijinks is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, produced by Big Dipper, editing and sound design by Will Pitts. Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.